Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and as usual, we will soon be joined by Chris Osmar. Once again, for those of you joining us, we are historians of the Third Reich who specialize in Hitler's secret state police. This week, we'll be discussing a chapter by Gerhard Powell about the development of the Würzburg Gestapo. It's an excellent starting point for people who are unfamiliar with the history of the Gestapo or just beginning to get to know the historiography. And the discussion provided plenty of jumping off points for Chris and I to go down digressions about other researchers in the field. Paul is a professor of history at University Flensburg and one of the most prolific names in the field when it comes to research about the Gestapo. As far as I know, he started work on the topic during the resurgence of research about political policing with the Resistance and Refusal Project in the late 80s and early 90s, where it seems he began his lengthy and productive collaboration with Klaus Michael Malman. From there, he went on to publish A History of the Saarland Gestapo, two edited collections that should be touchstones for anyone interested in the history of the Gestapo, and yet somehow his work has never been translated into English. The bulk of his work that interests me was produced as part of the two large research projects that he undertook during this period, the first of which ran from 1992 to 1996, and the second from 1996 to 2000. The title should give you some indication of why I find them interesting. The first came out immediately following the explosion of research into the Gestapo, and is called The Gestapo in German Society, which is the same name as the book written by Robert Galately that, that sort of began this larger interest in the subject. And the second, which ran to 2000, was called The Social History of Terror. So obviously quite relevant to our interests here. At any rate, this week we'll be discussing a chapter entitled Continuity and Radicalization, Gestapo Station Würzburg, about the organization's development in northern Bavaria. And really, it's it's a one-stop overview of all of the research up to the mid-90s. And as I said, an opportunity for me and Chris to discuss many of the other threads that went into the article and have since come out of it. But before we begin, it's time for the HNet News. Chris, what do you got for us this week? Well, a while back, I talked a little bit about Stefan Erig's 2014 book, Ataturk and the Nazi Imagination. Mm. Uh, and you may recall that in this, uh, Erig suggests that Ataturk's Turkey offered a model for the Nazi movement. So this is another one of those books about transnational influences on, on Nazi Germany that I always seem to be attracted to. Mm. Well, having considered Ataturk as a model for Nazism, uh, Eric has now turned to a study of the influence of the persecution of Armenians 
in the Ottoman Empire, culminating in the Armenian Genocide, the influence of persecution on Germany. In his new book, Justifying Genocide, uh, Germany and the Armenians from Bismarck to Hitler. So I've, I've got a review of the book here that ran on HNET uh, by Wolfgang Schwanitz, uh, as well as a piece uh, that Erig himself uh, published that kind of explains his argument. So what Erig says is that the place of the Armenian genocide in the prehistory of the Holocaust has been recognized, but it's often more or less overlooked or, or brushed by quickly. And what he's trying to do here in this book is to correct that. So uh, his work here centers around the question of how the Ottoman approach to the so-called Armenian question was discussed within Germany both before and after the Armenian genocide. So he's not so much concerned with what actually happened in the Ottoman Empire. Well, of course, he's concerned with that, but that's, that's not what he's trying to expound upon in this book. Uh, he wants to explain how Germans perceived it, how they talked about it, and how they interpreted this violence against Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. So even before the Armenian genocide, there had been some serious persecution of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, between 1894 and 1896, there were the so-called Hamidian massacres of Armenians. Uh, and these were very widely publicized in Germany and in the rest of Europe. And they caused all kinds of outrage and produced a good deal of sympathy for Armenians amongst the German public. The thing is, though, that Germany at this time was pursuing a closer relationship with the Ottoman Empire, uh, and because of this, the German elite and the German government mostly fell into the pro-Ottoman or really anti-Armenian camp in this discussion. Uh, still, uh, for the most part, the German public was pretty much on the side of the Armenians. But just two years after the end of these Hamidian massacres, uh, German Emperor Wilhelm II went to the Ottoman Empire, and this reignited the debate and strengthened the pro-Ottoman side because he was demonstrating you know, friendship with Abdul Hamid II, uh, who you know was in, in, in many European countries as a butcher. So. Germans, regular Germans, had been conscious of the plight of the Armenians already in the 15th century. Uh, but of course, the way in which Germans understood the Armenian genocide itself is most important if we're trying to look for influences on the Holocaust. Uh, the German public did talk about the Armenian genocide as well. Uh, in fact, between 1919 and 1923, there was a lively public debate about the significance of the Armenian genocide. And the reason this happened was that you know, Germany had been on the side of the Ottoman Empire in the First World War, and uh, the German government and the German people wanted to exculpate themselves, to remove any charges of complicity in the crimes of their wartime ally. So, there was public interest in this debate already 
uh, shortly after the end of the First World War. But then there was an incident that really intensified interest in discussion discussing the, the genocide that took place. Talat Pasha, one of the chief organizers of the Armenian Genocide, one of the three Pashas that was running the Ottoman Empire, was assassinated in 1921. Mm-hmm. But he was assassinated in Berlin. And the assassin was an Armenian. And the assassin who admitted to the crime was acquitted on the grounds that he was motivated by trauma experienced during the First World War. So this enraged the debate once again. And during the debate, the rejection of this, of this verdict and the German desire to distance themselves from responsibility for atrocity led to a justification of the genocide, led to a presentation of the Armenian genocide as a military necessity. An unfortunate but prudent response by the Ottoman government to an Armenian stab in the back. The argument that Armenians were betraying the Ottomans by supporting the Russians during wartime. And during this debate, some of this rhetoric about Armenians started to mesh with German anti-Semitism. Some commenters presented the Armenians as, quote, Jews of the Orient. And the result of the German discourse on the genocide was, more or less, the presentation of a public justification for what had happened and for what the Ottomans had done. And during the course of the debate, people started drawing these parallels between the Armenians and contemporary German society. And some even called for the expulsion of German Jews during the course of this debate. So there was clearly a there was clearly engagement in, in Germany with what had happened in the army in in the Ottoman Empire with the Armenian genocide. That people were thinking about it and and people were justifying what had happened. But it kind of disappeared. Uh, Eric acknowledges that while early 1920s, this had been a hot topic. The debate had long since subsided by the time Hitler took power. And uh, by the 1930s, there was relatively little discussion of the Armenian genocide in Germany. Like There's the very famous uh, Hitler quote, uh, who now speaks of the Armenians, or Mm -hmm. um, something to that effect. Uh, So at this point, uh, in considering Germany after the Nazis have come to power, uh, Erig then turns to material from his earlier book to argue that uh, Germany had started to look to the new Turkey as Erig's words, a post-genocidal wonderland. Uh, not talking about the genocide anymore, but talking about what could be interpreted as a pure racial state. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a really interesting book. Yeah, it sounds fascinating, doesn't it? Well, I, I'm curious when they're talking when you're talking about this being such a hotly contested public discussion. Where is this happening? Like, it, where is it being talked about? Uh, as I understand it, it's in in the press. Like this, this tr- uh, trial of the assassin of Talat Pasha is all over the news, and this this is high profile stuff, and it's high drama too. We're we're talking about a. The assassination not a, of a not, a, not a head of state, but somebody that more or less had that role. Being 
being killed in the German capital uh, and and the guy that killed him being let off. Yeah, that I mean, there's so many like the extra added layer of the the PTSD defense on that is also particularly interesting, uh, just on the like German criminology front. But yeah, like whether or not it's faded from public consciousness, right? Like you still had this entire debate in public talking about calling for the expel expulsion, calling for the expulsion of the Jews in Germany using the Armenians as a precedent. Yeah. That that seems pretty significant, right? Uh, of course, I think that's why Eric is careful to to stress that that this rhetoric, the direct connection, had subsided by the time Hitler came to power. And remember, this is the early 1920s. Yeah, but all the same, just the, the fact that it happened uh, shows that that people were thinking about it. That people were making connections between their anti-Semitism and anti-Armenian sentiment that they saw parallels. Man, I, I obviously have not done enough newspaper work. There is some really interesting stuff to be found in there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's as, as sources go, those are pretty easy to come by. Yeah, yeah. The microfilm it's it's not harder to get microfilm stuff that way. That does sound like a really cool book. Is it uh, anything else that was salient about it to you? Well it, like I said, I, I only just saw the review and, and Eric's bit on what he had to say. But uh, what, what I would like to know a bit more about is the, the period, nearly 10 years between the end of this debate in 1923 and when the Nazis come to power. If any other ideas persisted between the discussion of the genocide and the beginning of looking at, at Turkey as a model. Hmm. Yeah, or what else is connected to it, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, that's something, because you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about the influence of colonial policy on German uh, behavior during uh, the Third Reich. And uh, the trick is always to figure out, you know, if there's some kind of line of transmission. Uh, it's almost like a, a chain of custody. And, and if you have a little break, then it's difficult to argue for continuity because it could be responsible to argue for continuity. Oh yeah. But I mean, whenever one part subsides or you whack a mole somewhere, it pops up somewhere else, right? It's just the trick mm -hmm. of connecting all the dots. Yeah. And, you know, of course, if somebody has expressed an idea publicly, even if they don't say it again for a decade, you've got to imagine that it's still bumping around in their head somewhere. Mm -hmm. Well, this may be a good, uh, point to move over to Powell's chapter. This guy this guy has written more about the Gestapo that I've read than I think anybody else <laughs> in the world. Like he's put out he's put out two edited collections with with, with his partner Klaus Michael Malman, who is has been instrumental in a lot of their work. But like I have a I have a lot of respect for Gerhard Powell. He's a cool yeah. dude. He's he's the reason that I think that I, I, I got as far into studying the Gestapo as I did. Um, oh, yeah? Once, when I found out about his stuff, I, I had done all of the work for the Masters and never known about him. I had read his larger study. And then when I found out that he had put out this particular edited collection with all of the essays and everything like that, this, the, like... The Gestapo mythos and reality. The Gestapo myth and reality was like that was the moment that 
Like I, that was one of those moments where you're like, oh, I'm home. You know, I found, I found everything <laughs> I've ever wanted to read, you know, huh, but great. you didn't, you didn't come to him early. I came, I came to him early, but I came to his work, uh, social brutalization, society, or Gesellschaftliche Verrohung. Um, the, the stuff, his terror and everyday life work that he did in the early nineties, the first stuff that he published on the Gestapo, I came to that work first before I heard, I like these two edited collections were, or no, just the one edited collection. No, both edited collections were out there and I had no idea. So I, I came to the collections of essays later. Well, he definitely is prolific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I oh. went on a fanboy, fanboy over here. So. No, that's great. Yeah. Leave that in. Okay. So. We have Gerhard, yeah, like you were saying, it's a good transition point to get into Gerhard Paul, Continuity and Radicalization, the State Police Station, Würzburg. So Würzburg is important because it is one of three surviving collections of actual Gestapo case files, of which I am such a big fan. But uh, all of the other actual casework of the Gestapo was burned when the Allies were crossing the borders. There's three collections that survived. One of them is in Würzburg, and Würzburg is in northern Bavaria. It's a it's a city that's sort of in rural the rural district, primarily Catholic. So, anyway, uh, you I could get I could give you way more detail than you want or need about it because Paul is going to tell us all about it. So, what's Paul telling us here about continuity and radicalization? Paul is sketching the foundations of what much of the research of the Gestapo from the late eighties to the mid nineties, his own included, were were basically coming to discover about every how more or less most of what we thought about the Gestapo was wrong. Uh or, or you, required extensive qualification. Why don't you outline that a little bit? What what did people think about the Gestapo before Powell comes in and, and intervenes. In the post-war world, you have this idea of totalitarianism that is advanced by Hannah Arendt. And the idea is, uh, as one of Powell's essays outlines, the Gestapo was all omnipresent and all-knowing, that there were spies everywhere, that there was a Gestapo agent on every corner, that German society was a police state and that nobody could move sideways or, or sneeze without the Gestapo knowing in some way. And that they reigned through an iron fist, that there was a top down terror that forced the German people to comply with national socialism. If anybody said no, then they were going to a concentration camp and they were going to be executed. That I think in a nutshell is basically how people thought about the Gestapo until the late eighties. Yeah, it was a way for Germans in the post-war world to exculpate themselves. That you could say, I didn't want to go along with everything, but if I hadn't, then the Gestapo would have locked me up too, or I would have wound up another victim. Yeah, make your your knife across throat motion, right? Like, <laughs> and, and I and I mean, of course, the other major the other major discovery we have we talked about Paul, 
But part of the explosion of, of literature on the Gestapo was Robert Galately and the Gestapo in German society, which was, in fact, actually the reason I ended up studying the Gestapo. And that, that was where the first big crack in the wall appeared that, in fact, there were not spies everywhere, but Germans were actually informing on each other. They were denouncing each other to the Gestapo. What is, what is everything that we have just come to accept as fact that is laid out in this, this article here? Well, I think that the continuities part is probably more significant, even though he gives less time to it in this chapter, that he points out that the personnel in the Würzburg Gestapo were not overly Nazified, that many of them were holdovers from the Weimar era, that most of them had not been radicalized in street fighting, uh, that only a third of them were Nazi party members, that most of them uh, were older, and that they were kind of the old guard in new uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was popularly understood that the Gestapo and the SS were the same thing and mm-hmm. that it was it was just a bunch of guys in black uniforms and trench coats and the Waffen SS and that was all one big monolithic thing where in reality what you're dealing with are are three three distinct organizations that increasingly are brought under the influence of a single larger SS culture but that's something that mostly happens at the at the upper and regional level leadership, it's not something that in the case of the the secret police, the Gestapo, ha- actually happens at the, the level of the officers. The officers are, by and large, still old Weimar, that is to say, democratic Germany era police officers who were engaged in policing politically motivated crimes. Which was a huge, yeah. you know, like there's, uh, Graf is also Another major name, and I mean, his his book came out uh, before the, the the article that is in fact in the collection that we are taking this chapter from also does a great job. You should just you should just buy this collection of essays if you read German and you're interested at all in the Gestapo. You will get most of what is up to date research on the matter. But and and what's the title of the collection as a whole? Uh, Die Gestapo, Mythos und Realität. Uh, the Gestapo, yeah. myth, myth and reality. With a foreword by Peter Steinbach, but uh, you can get in paperback now, which is amazing. It means it's cheap. You don't have to pay your firstborn <laughs> child. So I just, I really, I anyway. <laughs> uh, this book, this this article, man. Like I, I have this is the most heavily annotated dog-eared book that I own. I'm sure. Like this, this is <laughs> your origin story, right? <laughs> <laughs> In fact, in part. So, uh, but anyway, continuity and radicalization. Yeah, like he he lays out shows that, yes, there is a continuity. And a lot of that research, again, and I think, I don't think Paul has, excuse me, I don't think that Paul has ever really gotten the full due that he deserves because he's often found himself in the position of, pulling together, finding the last piece of the puzzle that pulls together a lot of threads of what other people 
have kind of been working towards, but it's never been quite big enough and quite flashy enough to get the full credit for all the work that he's done, I think. Um, it's never never been enough to get translations. Yeah. Yeah. Why is the, like, I, I, I have no clue why that's the case. Like, if you want to understand the terror system and terror is supposed to be one of the pillars of Nazi Germany and the fact that terror is, in fact, not terror as we normally think about it and have thought about it. Th- this is the guy that you got to read and he, you can't get him in yeah. English. Yeah, it's a shame. Maybe that'll change someday, but it might be a little late for that. Starting with this podcast, man. Right. There you are. There's a decade lag time on a lot of this stuff, so why not too? <laughs> Regardless, there's also this entire idea that the Gestapo primarily function through desk work, that they're, that it's a yeah. bureaucratic organization. And again, this is another one of those cases, like I was saying, the entire idea of the the desk murderer was already something that was quite active in the Holocaust research, Right. But it was not something that had been translated in the way that people understood how German society was policed. People still thought of German society, like I said before, as having the Gestapo agent on every corner, when in fact it was primarily denunciation. And for, you know, it's it's just that's not the case, right? It's you've got a bunch of guys in an office sending out requests to all of these other organizations who are in fact the organizations responsible for performing surveillance or snooping into someone's background to provide a political evaluation as it's called or all of these other uh, you know the the grist for the mill of policing decisions in Nazi Germany and um in it's not a bunch of guys in trench coats lurking around <laughs> in in you know in in shady alcoves and doorways right it's a bunch of it's a bunch of people with law degrees sitting at desks or old policemen working for people with law degrees sitting at desks uh-huh. yeah just a lot of filling out reports in trays and out trays man uh-huh. and, and i and that's definitely something that's not in the popular consciousness of the gestapo like the gestapo is where the image of the man in the trench coat and the knock on the door in in the night and the fog comes from right like these are all terms that are associated with the gestapo and yeah. those things happened and i have case files to show that they happened but they happened very 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 rarely compared to what their standard operating procedures were and that's part of what paul is is really bringing bringing out with his whole argument about continuity from the police work of the previous uh of the previous periods right yeah so what other continuities does he identify here? Anti-communism, man. Like the the Gestapo is quite understandably most closely identified with the Holocaust for everything that we talked about with Hoyer being the reason why we, th- you know, you think about Gestapo, you think about SS, you think about the death camps. Why wouldn't you, right? But the, if again, if you're looking at what most of their work was up until 1941 and really only up until about 1935, you're, you're overwhelmingly preoccupied with anti-communism and breaking up leftist parties like the Socialist Party of Germany or the Communist Party of Germany, which continue to operate underground after 1933. I mean, one of the, the continuities he identified is the actual records from the Weimar period yeah. on leftist groups. 
Yeah, the Gestapo Akartai are literally the Spartacus Kartai that were kept by the Weimar <laughs> p- uh-huh. political police, right? Like they just take their records and they keep working with them. Yeah, and uh, these these same records, the what become the Akartai, the 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 A cards, uh, would be used in 1944 for Action Gewitter, uh, which we talked about uh, when we talked about Lotfi. Uh, this rounding up of people who had been prominent in the the Socialist Democratic Party or in the Communist Party, uh, just purely for their their actions during the Weimar period. Yeah, and uh, the fact that they were prominent political individuals, that they were somehow part of a political organization and that they contributed to the function of that party. And uh, just to point out, A-cards in this case is short for Aufsicht, which is oversight. So these are literally your cards of people that you are surveilling, right? Like this is this is the Gestapo's lists of people that they need to occasionally go and stand on a street corner and watch their apartment. And and they get that list from the Weimar Republic. They add to it, but and and they manage it and um one thing that Paul doesn't really bring across is how high the turnover was on on that list that there was a regular review of it and that people were constantly being added and removed mm-hmm. but uh, he def he nails the the bureaucratic nature of surveillance that that it is quite literally sort of by the numbers uh send out your request okay four month period well this is serious enough we should extend it for another four months you know that there's a that there's a scheduled bureaucratic process to the way that the Gestapo functions. It's not smoke and shadows and mirrors behind the scene. Yeah. But they do get help from the party and government administration and the uniform police. They, they are working behind desks, but they also have relationships with other organizations that are doing some of the legwork for them and with the, the German people as a whole which are doing most of the legwork for them through denunciations. Yeah, it's not spy. And again, he he does the key thing here he points out is that the spies, this is something that I didn't even realize that he had noted in his work, but most spies are the greatest successes with spies have to deal with the underground socialist party. So he's saying something that is still not really accepted in in sort of Gestapo literature that I'm still trying to prove with the at least for the English-speaking world, with the dissertation, right? That that spies are used against organized resistance. The rest of society is policed through denunciation, which I mean is important, right? Like, I don't know. It's just it changes your conception of how the state functions once you realize actually Germans are the ones doing most of the reporting on each other. That almost sounds scarier. I think I would rather live in a society where I worry about secret police spies than in a society where I've got to worry about everybody. Yeah, your neighbors? Yeah. Man, I yeah, absolutely. I I agree with you. The there are stories that that I have read in the Gestapo files that make me uneasy about basic betrayal of trust between people who were neighbors that thought they were mm-hmm. friends, you know? And and some petty disagreement blows up and I boom reported to the Gestapo, you know, nothing often comes of it because the Gestapo is, as as Paul points out, quite aware of 
the the shortcomings of relying on people who might have personal disagreements to report on each other. <laughs> but, uh, you know, your life still gets torn apart in the process. And it's not yeah. a pleasant experience. So, yeah. Well, he also so, points out, and again, this is something that predates Nazi terror and Johnson by six years. The, 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 the thing here is that he only focuses on cases involving denunciation because he's drawing a comparison to cases that in are, um, he's drawing a comparison to cases that are investigated and closed by the use of informants. And I think informants is a better word than spies. Spies gives it a mm-hmm. much more romantic aura than the fact that you're paying somebody to keep tabs on what somebody says at the bar or something like that. This is sure. this is much more along the lines of police and a criminal informant model than it is right. along the idea of this. It's not it's not this sort of like espionage of of. Uh, of of the Gestapo treating German society as a foreign power that it's going to infiltrate with human intelligence, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Spies implies undercover work. Undercover oh. work by the Gestapo personally. Exactly. Yeah, rather than establishing relationships with regular Germans who then feed the Gestapo information. Which is what happens. And, and yeah. he doesn't bring it up here, but I uh, forget whose work it was that did a really good job at that, but most most informants are actually people who were going to be convicted for conspiracy to commit high treason and then were turned into informants on behalf of the Gestapo for clemency. So they didn't go down for like a 10-year penitentiary sentence or a five-year penitentiary sentence or something like that, which is quite lengthy actually for the sentencing standards of the time. Which which is interesting to note that Nazi Germany totally edited out, but I just think it's interesting to note that the sentencing standards in Nazi Germany are laughably lenient. On, <laughs> right? on, like it's either execution well, or yeah, six you months. hit the threshold. You hit the threshold, <laughs> and then it's just ex- yeah, right. Avoid overcrowding your prisons. Although it turns out that that didn't work out. I don't know. I I think I think it actually can be connected to a much longer discussion about sentencing standards and penal reform and penology and criminology that reaches back from about the whole discussion from the 1890s and the, the, the social question and everything. But um, that's, that's a topic for a different day. Okay. But there, there's cycles. Anyway, I'm just going all over the place. (laughs) That's all right. This is free form. It's perfect. (laughs) But it's good. Like this is, this is the kind of article because really, he's just he's like he's just laying down truth, man. He he's citing other scholars' work who have pointed out key points, or he's got them writing articles in the book alongside them, and then he's kind of filling out the bits and pieces that showed. Look, no, this was not some regional phenomenon. This was how the organization functioned. And I mean, like he's uh, what was I saying before? He's showing. Yeah, this is where I got down this whole digression. He shows that there's this remarkably high number of cases that is in fact dismissed before any interaction with the with the actual justice system or the court the formal justice of the courts that 45.7% of cases that come in from Germans who are denouncing one another are thrown out before there's any discussion with the state prosecutor unfortunately and or well fortunately from my perspective unfortunately because now I have to go to Würzburg 
he's only <laughs> he's only looking at this number from the perspective of cases that are denunciations. He's not looking at a, a full blind random sample of particular type of cases. So I don't know if that comes down to the way that the Würzburg collection is organized as opposed to the Dusseldorf collection. Uh, and also, again, that he's drawing the contrast with the way that the spies have worked, or spies, informants are being handled. <laughs> Excuse me. Wash out my mouth with soap. But uh, yeah, I think, again, that's another thing that Eric Johnson went on. And Eric Johnson somehow is still hotly debated. Uh, or well, was hotly debated at the time. I think he's one of those guys who managed to sort of gradually be accepted as truth. Like it's one of those things that was so far out when it was originally stated that most the Gestapo dismissed most cases. The pieces were already there in research that Paul was doing, looking at different uh, different groupings of files and different uh, of policing of different offenses and things like that. But uh, when Johnson came out he was the first one to have like a a regional study that was just devoted to that phenomenon broken down by different social groups. But he overplayed his hand on a couple of claims about the Gestapo not caring about the policing of certain social groups. And so people just disregarded it. I am so far off track. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, you are a little bit off track, but what I, what I think is interesting here is that uh, it's kind of like how in the sciences people don't publish negative results. And, and the connection here is that people were not writing about what the Gestapo wasn't doing, but mm-hmm. <laughs> about the, the groups that were not being subjected to terror because it's, it's a null result, right? What's interesting is, is who is being subjected to terror and it just kind of, was assumed that it was everybody. I I think that's something that's definitely been overlooked in the entire history of Nazi Germany, let alone the Gestapo specifically. But I I think it's most important in the history of the Gestapo presently because that silence is most of German society. And Mm -hmm. the reasons for that silence give you some of the greatest insights into the relationship between state and society. Yeah, And, you know, that's where you're making your mark. That's where I'm going to write a book, man. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So we have the continuity of personnel. We have continuity of method in terms mm-hmm. of uh, both resources and general operation. Like the world does not change fundamentally. Radicalization. I what I suppose before we move into radicalization, is there anything else in terms of continuity that we need to address? A uh, small point. He he also points out that the Würzburg Gestapo continued to work very closely with the uniform police uh, right up until 1941. So they're still working with the the rest of the the police organization there in Würzburg, uh, at least up until the beginning of the war. So right. even though they're, they're established as um, an independent agency and, until they get, get ruled into the, the Nuremberg uh, Gestapo station, uh, they're still working with the same people they've been working before the Nazis came to power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the organizational interactions with different groups or the reliance on 
literally civil administration, political and civil administration, to do most of their work for them mm-hmm. while they sit at desks is, again, something that doesn't really jive with the normal view of the Gestapo and or, or the popular view of the Gestapo the, and really what was much of the mythical. scholarly view. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and But I mean, Wagner has a really good book about that as well. The Gestapo was not alone. And basically, it is just a giant list of every organization that the Gestapo cooperated with and in what ways. Beautiful. Right? Like, it's 230 pages, followed by 70 pages of just charts and, like, sociological diagrams rethinking the way that uh, other, uh, that civil institutions interacted with social control organizations, specifically the Gestapo, but also through intermediaries like the DAF and the German Labor Front's information Mm -hmm. section that had informants in factories and things like that, right? So... The cover, the picture on the cover of that book is really well chosen. It's a picture of a Gestapo officer, a uniformed police officer, and two SA auxiliaries arresting a Jew. And I, I think that picture kind of sums up sort of that that whole institutional cooperation that you the don't cooperation, expect. Yeah, that like because I mean, like he says, like Paul says, half of what's being done is being done by the civil administration in the countryside. And he doesn't really go into as much detail, but from the the way that he's talking about it, it sounds very much like it is in the Rhineland, where essentially, excuse me, essentially your political police in the countryside are the mayors. The mayor is empowered as police authority in small towns. And when that happens, they're the ones who write up the report and then they send it to the Gestapo and they say, what do you think? Or sometimes they intercede on people and they go like, Oh, I know this kid. He's a good kid, you know, or he's feeble minded. He doesn't know what he's talking about, whatever, you know, Mm. let him go. But you know, that, that there are not Gestapo officers on every corner. Very often there are not, there's not even a police presence, right? There are other civil administrators standing in that role. Yeah. These seem like, uh, those ad hoc relationships, right? That uh, the Gestapo is, is finding people that are in the the right places and the places that that they can't have a presence because their their personnel is, base is so small. This uh, is something where I think that there's more research to be done. But sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Sure. Oh well, I just I think it's interesting that through all of these different relationships, the Gestapo finds a way to get the information that it needs through relating with the people, with administration, with other police agencies uh, that they don't have to be out there uh, in the streets in trench coats. Mm -hmm. So radicalization, where do the Gestapo radicalize and where do they, where do they change their behavior? All right. So Paul is saying that the big moment of radicalization is the beginning of the war. But he does identify some transitions that come before 1939. That there's a change in 1935 when the Gestapo moves from pursuing you know, communists and socialists to moving against general dissent. Uh, and then there's a move in 1937 
where the Gestapo becomes more concerned with the uh, struggle with the Catholic Church that's going on uh, and starts to get involved in racial ideology. Uh, but the, the big change comes with the outbreak of the war. And that the beginning of the war is the point where the Gestapo in Würzburg shifts decisively from trying to police Germans who are dissenting in one way or another to persecuting people on the basis of race. And he notes that 70% of the files from after the beginning of the war have some kind of racial character, that they're either about uh, Jews uh, in the region or about prisoners, prisoners of war or foreigners. Now, if Dusseldorf is any indication, I bet most of those are passport and deportation cases, like where they're, they're calculating people's holdings. Jewish policy in the Dusseldorf collection is maybe the largest or second largest after KPD, but <laughs> I, I paged through a lot of the cards from uh, like in the finding aid, and most of them are just passport and deportation management like it's keeping a file on where people have been sent and what's happening with their property well i mean by deportation if we're talking deportation, deportation I, yeah I, sorry i'm that, speaking in the euphemisms of the gestapo i mean the holocaust <laughs> and being sent to yeah. the east to be killed yes yeah yeah so uh, that's that's significant very significant. It, it, it is very significant. Is involved intimately in the Holocaust. In yes, finding Jews and sending them east to be murdered. But when I was trying, the point that I was trying to raise, and what I think is quite interesting, is that the nature of the casework changes fundamentally, and that doesn't quite come across in Paul's work. Paul is very good at showing, or like he 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 lays out. Most of the active work is done against clandestine resistance by organized underground groups and that most of society is policed by denunciation and that there is a shift that occurs and there's a lot more attention focused in Würzburg, especially and in the regions on the Catholic Church. And then in 19, after the war starts, it is much more about racial policy, enforcing racial policy, whether it is POWs, Jews, or what's the third one? Your your guys, For, the foreign, foreign workers, workers yeah. slave labor, right? So what I what I was saying was, if that's if that's the case, I'd be really interested to look at what the composition of the caseload is in Würzburg, because in Dusseldorf, mo if, if that's the case the numbers that he's talking about are primarily to do with Jewish policy. And it is primarily a bureaucratic exercise rather than mm -hmm. an investigation, right? Like it's, sure. it's cataloging. It's, it, it, it's one that speaks to the nature of the Gestapo's involvement in the Holocaust within Germany. And two, it speaks to the nature of their involvement in the Holocaust more broadly as the primary mover but it's also a very different type of activity for them that they're engaged in for this this short, sharp period of time when the Holocaust enters its active phase. But but your point here is that while their caseload increased, their workload didn't necessarily increase. That it was is just a manner of checking off the boxes before you 
put people my, on train. Send them my off. point is that their workload, the nature of their work changes. Okay. So there's no investigation to be done. So if someone is, is a Jew, you just need to, to catalog them. There is another book on. that specifically looks at this uh, that you should read and is only in German. Um, that is about the Dusseldorf Jewish desk, the uh, 2B, the so-called cultural desk that looks at Freemasons, Jews, and the, the political Catholicism. But mm -hmm. And I, ha I haven't read it. So what is it? What is it? Well, let me pull up my let me pull up my bibliography. Holger Berschel, Bürokratie und Terror, a very telling title, Bureaucracy and Terror, Das Judenreferat der Gestapo Düsseldorf, 1935-1945, the the Jewish desk of the Gestapo Düsseldorf. Uh, but that that I know is uh, sort of the definitive word on that particular huge outcropping of files. So there'll be more on what the nature of that work was in those. But from paging through the finding aids, it looks like the, the nature of the work is even more bureaucratic than the investigations that are involved because there's no interrogations. It's, it's just record keeping. And it would have been the order police that were actually carrying out the deportations, right? There is some stuff about uh, Gestapo personnel being called on to stand guard at bridges while deportations are ongoing specifically they appear in information which i will send to you actually uh, along with my spreadsheet that i did of all of the different um disciplinary violations that various members of sepo engaged in but okay. uh and, and it's a great one because they got like falling down drunk while they were waiting in a train yard to block off a bridge that went over one of the the eastern deportation trains the to send the Jews to the death camps, right? So like there, there, there are indications that the Gestapo is involved in special actions when a group of people will be rounded up to be transported to a ghetto as a staging area on the way to the death camps. But I don't know. I'm not that's, again, that's a question for Berschel. Alright, so with the beginning of the war policing takes on a more racial character or at least persecution the, of the, the groups yeah 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 the 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 target groups of police activity or, or of gestapo activity uh are more often people who are racial outsiders in germany yeah political uh, but, outsiders take a back seat yeah uh, well i mean at this point they've been dealt with right but at the same time, the biggest, bur the the highest level of opinion policing occurs in 1939. So I was interested that he said that in Würzburg's case, huh. at least in Dusseldorf. That's that's when the most cases of opinion related offenses occur. I suppose that makes sense. Immediately after the war, you have your crackdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Paul does also point out that radicalization happened in the East with the Einsatzgruppen in Poland and the Soviet Union. And he notes that a quarter of the personnel of the Würzburg Gestapo participated in one or both of these Einsatzgruppen actions. Um, and also that, that they were involved in the partisan war. And, and he says that the Einsatzgruppen in the partisan war 
contributed to the transfer of methods for fighting enemies from the east back into the Reich. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that he uh, notes that I, I didn't realize and I was pretty fascinated by was that in as early as 1941, Einsatz commandos were established within Germany. Uh, now, they were only active in the POW camps, going to find uh, communist functionaries in the POW camps, uh, people who would have fallen under the the commissar order, right? So uh, communist political functionaries uh, were to be executed, uh, but that there were Einsatzkommandos within Germany in 1941 that were actually doing that. I I felt quite displeased by those two particular, his radicalization section was so rushed. Yeah, and, no doubt. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, it looks like he pulled some information from, the memos and I don't know at least from my experience with working with the Dusseldorf, with the Gestapo files in Dusseldorf the memos don't give you the full picture the memos give you the mental landscape of where which cases you might expect to see be sent on to a court which cases which cases are going to have informants assigned, which cases are going to be investigated even though there's some long-standing personal dispute between the denouncer and the suspect, but they don't necessarily show you where the bulk of activity is, is focused. Well, you, it's, you know certain, I mean? it's certainly, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this section is, is rushed, but I mean, do you take issue with like the, the basic content uh, of oh no 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 I I'm sure that it happened but I'm not sure that it was more than like a one day operation. Oh, you're talking about this 1941 Zaz Commando, mm-hmm. and like those oh. the the points that he raises are so boom boom boom, uh, just lay, they're stated in a single sentence without any explanation or discussion. this happened this happened this happened this happened all of this shows radicalization that from the bird's eye point of view where he's trying to show that personnel went from the weimar political police to the gestapo which we we know and love to loathe of the end of the war that you don't how yes it works at that level but Again, this is a gripe of a historian who wants to know more. Mm-hmm. In that, um, okay, but how how representative of that is how how representative is that of their day to day workflow, right? How representative of that is their of their activities toward the German population at large, right? Yeah, uh, and and there were. There were other issues too that he's brought up that he could have given us more information or analysis on. Like, I mean, he talks about the composition of the Würzburg Gestapo personnel, uh, but their background in, in the Weimar period and their their age and all that. But he doesn't talk about uh, how the personnel changed if these old school guys stuck around. And, or when he's talking about uh, the participation of a quarter of the Gestapo in the East, whether there was a specific demographic within the mm-hmm. Gestapo that was, was sent East, were, was it the younger people that were sent East? Because that's certainly how it worked in the order police. 
Uh, that I looks like how it no. that looks like how it worked in Dusseldorf. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming that we can extrapolate that to a national. Trend. Yeah. But again, and, more information needed. Yeah, yeah, right. But I mean, this was a brief chapter. And, and he's trying to cover the entire of history of yeah. all of the continuities and all of the radicalizations of yeah. a particular good shopping station. So, which is both its great achievement and failing, right? That when, <laughs> right. Uh, your your scope limits what you can do, and just as it it allows you to show certain things that you can't otherwise. Mm -hmm. But I mean, his great achievement here is that he really has hit almost all of the really important points of continuity and radicalization. Yeah, he's if got, you if you wanted to personnel. introduce somebody, uh huh. If you wanted to introduce somebody to the way that Gestapo operated in eighteen pages, this is this is your one stop shop, right? Like if I had a semin if I had a senior seminar where I knew the people spoke German this is what I would assign if you wanted to know if you want the Gestapo in one quick and dirty introduction <laughs> for discussion among kind of a few other articles that discuss different aspects of it. This is the article I would assign. Yeah. It's, it's a good jumping off point. Yes. I think that's, I think that kind of sums it up uh, at its core. So frustrating, yeah. frustrating for those who have read way too much about Gestapo, but an ideal starting yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, this, you know, it's, it's important because he's, he's kind of laying out places for further research and, you know, mm -hmm. most of it has been done since. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think the point that you raised and that the point that you raised earlier, that the reason this article kind of left us both cold was because so much of what he's saying has since been accepted as just the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Is I think you're you're bang on the mark. Yeah. So, but an oldie but a goodie. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, the one point you were saying about areas for further research, I I definitely think there is more room to discuss the the role and the ins and outs of the relationship between the civil administration as police authorities and the Gestapo in different areas of the country, how that relationship changed and how it developed, especially in the early days. I think there's an entire, there's at least an article, if not a book that could be written about the relationship between the political police and the Gestapo from 1933 to I think about 1937, there are a lot of interesting decisions that are made about the organization of archives. Uh, the the beginning of the keeping, the Gestapo begins to keep its own separate archives, and then the control of that information, who is allowed to access it, whether or not they're compelled to send that information to the Justice Department, or not the Justice Department too whether or not they're compelled to send that information to the courts and who other authorities in the system are required to interact with when it comes to a political offense. The Gestapo does not have the same kind of, I guess, monopoly on the flow of information to the courts in 1933 and 1934 
and it's less it's clear that things are different by 1935 that it does by the time the war is declared you have you know standardized forms you know fill out form 23a right like you know on whatever for anything right and it's always filled out completely but in those first three years and really up until 1936 1937 it's not always clear that the Gestapo are the first ones are, are are the loop, right? There are other players there and the Gestapo is not always in the loop. And I really think a lot more work needs to be done connecting what the Gestapo is doing from 1933 to 1937. And I think a lot of this changes after Himmler becomes chief of German police in 1936 and he integrates the security police and the Gestapo into a national organization. But up until that point, I think that there's a lot more leeway about who you have to report these things to and who you should report them to and when the Gestapo wants you to report them to them. Like the parties there, there are civil administrators just sending court cases, I'm sure, straight to the courts for a whole variety of of like disturbing the peace or um, well, primarily disturbing the peace charges that could fall under a concentration camp or could fall under uh, the malicious gossip laws. And it's in 1935, once you start to get separate archives being organized and uh, reporting responsibilities. And that, that's what's interesting is that you can trace it to a moment where the Gestapo requires everybody in civil administration to at least report all of the political cases that they have that you can see them begin to assert greater control over that flow of information from sort of the, the suspicion of an offense and the investigation of it into the courts that they interpose themselves and that all political offenses run through them. It's not, it's not that clear cut in the early days. Well, so if somebody were to want to take this on, uh, what's the research question there? I don't know. I don't know, but I like, I, I just, this is one of those things where like, you know, I didn't write the dissertation with a research question. I didn't write the MA with a research question. I <laughs> reverse engineered a research question to put <laughs> scope on the material that I had discovered, right? Um, this is another one of those projects where there's a definite phenomenon that you can uh -huh. view in the archives. And there are a few, there are a couple memos where it's clear that there are, are key moments, but it's something that you would really you'd have to look at court records and I'm not sure that they would be there because they're not special court records. Like you're, you're talking about getting into court cases that probably wouldn't necessarily have been kept, but I know that there's some research that's been done on like the Hamburg Hanover. I think I quote this guy in, in, in I think my, my second chapter, but he's done a lot of really good work about, the transition of um, sort of a more informal policing of opinion offenses and, you know, the prosecution of people for disturbing the peace for Marxist statements and things like this. Apparently, it's the most common charge in Germany in 1933 and 1934. And then in 1935, after the introduction of the law against malicious gossip in December, you see the number of cases for opinion-related offenses going through the Gestapo shoot through the roof, right? 
And I think because that that legal groundwork framework is still developing at the same time the Gestapo is trying to assert control and develop its own archives and and break away as a separate institution outside of both state administration and distinct in having its own rights under a mandate of prevention that is separate from punishment, right? Like uh, that they, they then state is what the courts are there for. That, that there's this whole process going on there that's quite interesting and sort of the development of that's where I, like I talk about a lot of the development of this relationship between the organs of social control, but I think there's more, it, there's more to be done there. There's more to be done there and it has to be done with like local court records. That's some heavy lifting. It is heavy lifting. I think that's why it's been overlooked, but hmm. I, but it, it's there and I think it's interesting. And j- again, like I'm just not sure if it's enough for a book or an article, but because um, there's so yeah, much maybe, there with civil for, administration, for, right? For somebody that's listening, that's maybe looking for you know a master's thesis or maybe a dissertation topic, something to to explore. This this could be promising for them. It could be. I have to race me for part of it, but <laughs> <laughs> no. I, seriously, okay, though, so you're, I, you're marking your marking your territory now. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think there's way. What I want to do next is I want to do a lot of this work with the KPD. I think there's more to be done with opinion related stuff, and the organizational history is not. There's so much. I my my true love is the case files, not the memoranda. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it, it's work, but it's there. It's work, but it's there, right? Like somebody, somebody can find something important there. Well, hopefully somebody takes it on. Maybe we can talk about their book or chapter yeah. or or article, uh, whatever it is that can come out of that. Get them on for the interview. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. Uh, speaking of which, I have received an email back from Claire Hubbard Hall of uh the the gestapo spies myths and realities fame uh she actually she won the uh the prize for best debut author for uh for that journal for that year for that article yeah 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 and she's working she's finally working on getting the manuscript of her book together and out like within the next 24 months which i cannot wait to read and she has agreed to come on and be interviewed at some point so all right so when are we going to do that? Some point in the future. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but yeah, the interviews are finally coming, and she says there she has more colleagues in the UK who would be interested in sharing their work on like the SD in 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 the Ottoman Empire in Turkey and um, uh, some other stuff. She sent me an email. There's like two or three people that she has in mind that she we can float the author past. So. All right, great. We we should should start trying to make that a regular thing. And with that promise of things to come, we draw this episode of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. We'd like to thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you next time when we'll be discussing a chapter by Ralph Blank that provides an overview of the end phase in Western Germany along the Rhine. Until then.